Lord, before we engage the word this morning, pray for another church and pray specifically for another pastor. And pray for Terry Blankenship. For a couple specific things I want to pray for Terry. I want to pray for his worship. Pray to guard him from just doing a J-O-B. Pray that he is uh, scandalized by, ravaged by the reality of being provided for while he is uh, tending your sheep at First Baptist. Lord, I want to pray for uh, his worship and his time of study. It's not just a study that so he can preach, but it's a study so that he can be transformed first and that he can uh, be changed in front of his wife and family. Or I pray that you will... Uh, Guard him as I would, pray, I would pray that you guard me and the other preachers in this community, that you guard us from wanting to take away ears and wanting us to preach what people want, but that we first and foremost uh, want to honor your word and want to expose your word, whatever it costs, whatever violence it might do to what we think or believe or have been taught even an inherited faith. What I pray to for opportunities uh, to engage the word in areas where we may differ. Drawing your word together, that your word will shape us into not just us in First Baptist, but other churches in this community into being a like-minded people. Or I trust that through Bible exposing dialogue and uh, reasoning and the work of the Holy Spirit, that you could do that. I know that I couldn't orchestrate that or any other man. I'm burdened for that. It's such disparity. And uh, so many different sheets of music, it's frustrating. Or I pray for the First Baptist Church, pray for worship, pray that they are enjoying you, pray that you'll guard them from um, doing the dance. And that you guard them from putting checks in the block that uh, somehow fulfill some seen requirements or perceived requirements of faith, but they are absolutely and completely casting themselves on your mercy because of the finished work of Christ alone. Lord, I pray that the First Baptist, as well as Cross Point Fellowship, as well as the other churches in this community, can clearly articulate that our righteousness is Christ. Absolutely and completely. Not just on the day that we began the journey, but on today and the last day that we breathe our lives. What I am uh, burdened with people of God and know that. Burdened with that we enjoy that. I pray that whatever way possible that we can serve alongside First Baptist Church and that we can enjoy you together. We love you, Lord. I'm looking forward to the time that we have in the Word this morning. I pray that it is honoring to you. I pray that we are sober and um, hungry and eager and available and attentive. I pray that whatever expectations we may have, whatever uh, needs even that we may perceive that we have, that we can put those aside and we can lay our lives open and bare and available. And to equip us to be people of God. We love you, Lord. We'll turn this time to you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> give you a little bit of a. Uh, we'll turn to John 15. Just a little bit of coaching as you're turning there on John. John is obviously not the only book in the Bible, but it's one that we've camped out in for a large part of our ministry here. It's been kind of home base for us, and we haven't been enslaved to it. But we spent a lot of time there. We've got to know this guy, John, the apostle. And um, we've got to know this book. This book is a lot like Revelation. Uh, in that it's just more soothing. Right? It's not real um, three points and a poem sort of preaching or study. You just have to kind of climb into it and get wet. That's the sort of book that it is. And I like that because it kind of weeds out the consumers. Um, folks that are here just to kind of get their needs met and get their itches scratched, 
they don't really last. And I, I mean, I'm not saying that I don't want people to last, but it's the word that sort of eliminates the consumer. Because the consumer just can't, for a long period of time, just can't put up with just talking about Jesus. Consumer said, man, I want you to start talking about me. Man, I want you to start making me feel good about myself and giving me some direction and some help. But the worshiper, on the other hand, realizes that our help is enjoying Christ. That is what we're made for. And John is that kind of book. It's just all up in Jesus and what he's done and what he has yet to do. So it is a worshiper's book. It's not a surprise that it's also the book that contains the account where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and saying, I'm not looking for consumers. He didn't say those words, but by implication. He says, I'm looking for worshipers who worship me in spirit and truth. So the coaching is, if you have some needs or you have some issues that you need to scratch this morning, just put those aside and let this be the rest. We're going to climb into a paragraph in John chapter 15 over the next few weeks. And I don't know how many weeks it's going to be. It might be two. It could be four. Uh, it's going to be more than um, more than one. Let me fix my four. be more than one and um, less than hundred. <laughs> like that. All right, picking up in John chapter 15, verse 18. But let me tell you, too, you need your Bible. If, if you're not one that uses your Bible, it's going to be another one of those occasions where I'm talking about you're going to be like, man, I don't get it. I want you to see it. So if you didn't bring a Bible, grab that Bible in front of you, and that can be yours. You can put your name in front if you don't have one, uh, that blue one. And I'll even give you some page numbers, page 902. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, this is on the eve of his crucifixion. Take in the context. He's talking with his disciples, likely on Mount Olives, uh, maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe on the way, but likely that given the depth of the conversation, it seems as if they'd be planted. The route up to the Mount of Olives is like this. It'd be hard to imagine you could have a conversation of this depth when you're just puffing and puffing. Likely they're in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his death. It says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours on the other hand. But all these things will, they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. That's the sin. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. This morning, just kind of beginning of this journey through this paragraph, we're going to focus on the first, first uh, verse, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. And we're really going to focus just on two words in context. The first word we're really going to examine is the word world, and the second word is the word know. It's going to be kind of the two parts of the message, if you want to make a little outline. Part one is dealing with world. We're going to do a little world study. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is sort of like a legend to a map. You can't hardly understand a map unless you have a legend. It gives you distances and cardinal directions and things like that. It's sort of like an instruction manual that helps you understand what you're about to get off into. And that's the way John chapter 1 is. It's sort of an explanation, sort of a condensed version of the rest of the book. And John chapter 1 verse 10 is a key verse. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay, there's three references to the world there, and two, two different meanings. The first two meanings have to do with, I mean, all three words actually in Greek are the word cosmos. But it's a great example of one verse having different contextual meanings in the same verse. 
The first two uses of cosmos in this passage, he was in the world. We're speaking of a physical creation. He showed up and put on flesh. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. We know that from Hebrews chapter 1, that creation was made through Christ. The Father spoke, and the Son went into action and created. He did the creative work. So the world was made through him. That's speaking of creation, creation stuff. We'll call it. That includes the heavens, the mountains, the streams, the sun, moon, and moon and stars, bushes, critters. We're going to call it, for the sake of shorthand, for the rest of the sermon, we're going to call it creation stuff. That's the first two uses in verse 10. But then the meaning changes on the last use. Yet the world did not know him. That third use of world in this case. The meaning shifts from being creation stuff to shifting to mankind. Now, this is going to be the meaning, not exclusively, but primarily for the rest of this book, referring to world as mankind. We're going to explore that a little more later. The first thing to know about world is to understand which kind of world we're talking about. And whenever we get back to John chapter 15, we'll know what kind of world we're talking about at that point. Something else you need to know about this world this mankind world, the second use there in verse 10, is that this world has a ruler that rules by permission. Turn to John chapter 12. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this World. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? That's speaking primarily to that second use, that mankind use, where we know that this is speaking of Satan, that is the ruler of this world. There's another reference to him just a couple chapters over in chapter 14, verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. But he has no claim on me. That's good news. And here's a third reference. You don't need to turn to this one. This is in 1 John, same author. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's primarily speaking of mankind. Lies in the power of the evil one. We need to realize that this world has a ruler that rules by permission. Something else we need to realize about this world that we're referring to here in John chapter 15 is that this world has a system. I do want you to see this passage. So turn to 1 John chapter 2. This is such an important passage to understanding the world. 1 John chapter 2 is on page 1021. Chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. That wouldn't be all types. That's creation stuff and mankind. Don't love these created things. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. Now here's the world system. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possession. It's not from the Father but it's from the world. Look at those things and really consider those things. Consider that most advertisements that we see, most things that we come in contact with all week long, all day long, have to do with these three things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possession. That's the world's system. The world has two different pieces. It has the creation and stuff, and there's mankind. The world is ruled by permission, by Satan. And the world has a system that involves the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possession. Let me show you what that world looks like in motion. Turn to John chapter 16, verse 20. Also on the eve of his crucifixion, later on in the conversation, Jesus, knowing what's in store the next day, says these words to these same 11 the weird that he's engaging here in John chapter 15. He says, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 20, chapter 16, 
you will weep and lament when you see me beaten and crucified. But the world will rejoice. You will weep and lament. But this world, this thing is driven by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possession. That thing will celebrate. Consider that the Jews who cheered only days ago will mock him the next day. The Jews who cheered and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will have the same, with the same mouth, will say, Give us Barabbas. Consider that the Romans will egg each other on as they beat Christ and spit on Christ. Consider that the Pharisees and the Sadducees will count it a victory, while the eleven consider this an absolute defeat. That's the way the world works. While you grieve over abortion, the world will celebrate freedom. While you grieve and mourn and lament over the redefinition of marriage, the world will celebrate tolerance. While you grieve over materialism, both in others and even in yourself, the world will celebrate the American dream here, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. It's an ugly world that we live in. But really take it in context and understand it. It has a ruler that rules by permission, thankfully, but rules nonetheless. The system is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. And while we mourn the people of God, the world will celebrate. The scandal of the whole thing is that God loves this world. That's the craziness of the whole thing. I can understand him loving creation stuff. I mean, what's not the love of God all? I can understand why he cares for the sparrow. What's a sparrow ever done? It makes total sense for him to clothe the lilies. And that just seems like what God ought to do. It makes sense for him to love creation stuff since he created it. He spoke it and went into action and made it. And he is going to redeem it. You need to know that about creation. It's not just about us. He's going to redeem this world. And creation is pretty excited about it as the fields exult and the seas roar and the trees clap their hands and the rocks cry out. Creation anxiously awaits Christ's return and its redemption. But mankind, man, that just doesn't make sense. When you really take it into account, the world cosmos mankind definition and the world system that we live by and the kind of world that, that celebrates when the people of God mourn and lament. Then you read John 3.16 with a whole new set of eyes and you go, God loved the world in this way. Not just critters. He loved mankind in this way. I can understand the lily and the sparrow, but not man. And understand dogs because they're loyal and consistent, but not man. What is man that you are mindful of us? When you take into account the above, you realize that our God demonstrates a shocking love toward this mankind in the person and work of the Son. Now we've done this little world study. We're equipped to consider the world of John chapter 15. Go back there. John chapter 15, I want you to have this verse in front of you. If the world, and again, we know in this context where this is going, I hope you know, even across the Jewish covenant. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He's not speaking of creation stuff here. Now, the fig tree that Christ cursed might have been lifted up to heaven. Donkey's cult might have been a little bit uncomfortable. We know that he imitated it here. He of Galilee didn't hate him as it carried him, as it calmed 
bread and fishes should have been able to multiply because in and out the world of mankind Speaking of mankind 2,000 years ago, mankind in Jerusalem, Nazareth, Nazareth, Galilee, this people, this wishy-washy people hated him. He's saying the world will hate you because it's hated me first. Think of the details there. Here's the first detail that came to mind for me. Judas, a man that followed him for 11 years, a man that he called, a man that saw every miracle, a man that was trusted, that carried the coin purse. Man that was close to Christ on the inner twelve, a follower of Christ and a friend to the others, so close to them that they didn't even know who it was. <coughs> they didn't know who was going to betray Christ. They didn't go, ah, I knew he was going to be Jesus all the time. In fact, they said, Is it me? I think about people who are close to Christ as he says, The world will hate you as it's hated me. A man like Judas. I think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the supposed keepers. I put quotation marks around that. Keepers of the law that he gave them. Think of the irony. The keepers of the law that God gave them. That's what Christ is referring to as his world. He's also speaking about God's chosen people, the people that he made, the people that once were not, the people that he traveled through the wilderness with, people that he gave bread to, quail to, water to, the people that once were not, that he made into a nation, not because they were special. This is the world that he's speaking of. Ironically, his own people. People who cheered for him only days earlier will cheer for Barabbas tomorrow morning. That's the world that he's speaking of. He's speaking of people that were all up close and personal. People that had names. People that may share last names. People that he shared memories with, likely. Great love of the picture of the love of Israel. What a great picture of the love of Israel. It's like a morning cloud that goes away early. Like the dew that dries up early. That's the mankind world that Christ is speaking of. So if we can let his world, as he says these words, inform our world, then we've got to go there. Our world, we're not talking about creation stuff any more than Christ was talking about creation stuff. Your neighbor's dog may totally hate you, but all canine doesn't. Clouds over your house don't hate you. The bushes by your walkway don't hate you. The night sky doesn't hate you. The message here is the same message that was for them. We're talking about mankind in his context. It's 2,000 years ago, mankind in Israel. Now we're talking about mankind here in Greenville 2,000 years later. Jesus says, will hate you is like Judas, close friends you never suspect. You think it's any different now? I wouldn't be surprised if a name popped into your head when I just said that. Maybe more than one. Close friends that you never suspect, trusted friends, people you went to high school with, people you make memories with, people you work with or worked with, people you bump into and live among Greenville is not some sort of oasis of peace and love that's somehow not true to the scripture there's nothing new under the sun Greenville might be smack dab in the buckle of the Bible Belt but I'm telling you it's no different than Jerusalem who's smack dab in the buckle of the Bible Belt of the Torah Belt for real People think we're in some sort of different context. Man, it's no different than that. We're not in a hate-free zone. Man, if we let his world help us understand our world, and we see in his world that once that people are cheering for him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, throwing down palm fronds, and a few days later shouting, give us Barabbas, then we must be prepared for the reality that some people that will hate us will be people who used to cheer for us. Trust me. 
in our world too, like his world, this world that will hate us, may include those that consider themselves the keepers of the truth. That's a hard thing to hear, but that's a reality. Protectors of what I would say is an inherited, biblically undeveloped faith. I don't use that critically. I use it diagnostically because I'm used to live there. I know what that place looks like, where sermons are made up more of anecdotal stories and emails and funny jokes than they are of exposing God's word because that's the best you got. And that's what daddy likes. Sugar stick sermons to make everybody laugh. And I used to live there. And we can be hated by folks right up in our context here. People that can throw rocks at us. And I, my observation is that those who throw rocks are those who unfortunately have a wafer thin grasp on the full counsel of God. And I'll say that in a condemning way because there's hope. But we've got to deal with it right here. We've got to deal with it right here. It baffles me how people could sit in a church week after week and listen to jokes and funny stories and anecdote. Man, I want people of God ought to be like people in Ezra's time saying, read to us from the book. Tell us what it means. Those are the words of life. And the reality is in our context right here, in our world, Greenville of 2010, we can be hated by those who identify themselves as keepers of the truth. Even those we consider his people, sometimes they can be the most hated. Sad, the truth. <coughs> if Christ's world helps us define our world, we've got to know that our world is not going to be so obvious as Brad has preached the last couple Sundays as Sam Cover walking around with a scowl and a black hat and pistols on his hip. They might be. But our world, this world that hates us, is not some sort of distant, dark, obvious entity. It's mostly those surrounding us in a context, in this context. This is not an oasis of peace. It's not a hate-free zone. In this context, it'd be people wearing a white hat and a smile and likely glad hand and then devouring you when you walk away. You cannot avoid being hated by this green world of 2010 if you're living and loving like Christ and if you're living and loving with Christ. I make you that promise. Because Christ made them that promise then. The second word I want us to consider this morning is the word know. Read the verse again, John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Know is, uh, in the Greek, could be translated two different ways. It could be an imperative mood, which is a command. Like Jesus commanding those guys, know that I'll be hated. The imperative looks just like the indicative. The indicative, though, is the context that seems to fit best, where it's the mood of certainty or reality. It seems Jesus wants them to know for certain. That's why I want you to know for certain when they are hated that Christ was hated first. There's something to knowing this. First of all, he emphasizes this as a certainty. Know it. For certain. Secondly, you know this this word no is plural. He's speaking to eleven dudes. He's not speaking to each one of them individually. He's speaking collectively to eleven people, the apostles. That's gonna make sense here in a moment. Jesus wants these eleven to know that they'll all be hated, and that he was hated first. Something about knowing that you're not the first and only to go through something, right? Something about knowing that you're not the first and only to go through something. 
Turn to 1 Kings. I'm going to give you a treasure this morning. A teaching that has ministered to me frequently over the last few years has been dealing with the sin of Elijah. I don't know if it's Satan whispering to us or if we just conjured this up on our own or a combination of the two, but we're all prone to the sin of Elijah and it seems that Christ was speaking to this as he wanted them to know you collectively need to know that I was hated first. A plural hatred is in store, but know that you're not the pioneer. I am. That's what Christ said. There's something to that, and we're going to explore this by considering the sin of Elijah, because the sin of Elijah plagues us, and Satan lies to us that nobody has ever gone through what we're going through. Nobody has ever been hated the way we are hated. Let me show you the story. A little background. Elijah, up to this point in chapter 19, has done this. He stood before the king of Israel, a man named Ahab, and he declared a drought. And guess what? It showed up in rain. Not a drought. Famine resulted as a result of the drought. This Elijah is witness to a jar of flour that couldn't be emptied. Anybody ever seen that? Take a jar, pour it out. It's still, I can't get it out. It will not empty. He's also been witness to a, a jug of oil that couldn't be spent. Let's pour that out. Oh, well, they just have a few drops left. Let's pour it Wait a second, there's still more in there. He declared a drought, bam, no rain. He's witnessed to a jar of flour that couldn't be emptied, a jug of oil that couldn't be spent. He's raised a widow's son from death. And next he goes toe-to-toe with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. I don't know what these dudes look like, but I bet they were all fixed up with big hats. You know, real show, screaming, cutting themselves, craziness. He goes toe-to-toe with these guys, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. After he mocks their God, he calls down fire that consumes his offering and laps up the water in the trenches around him after he doused it. And then he slaughters the prophets at the brook of Kishon. Did you know that? He slaughters them. I mean, Elijah's seen some amazing stuff. The next, after he called for a drought, now he calls for rain from Carmel. And a tiny little teeny cloud the size of a man's fist forms out in the distance. And then a few minutes later, the clouds are dark. The sky is dark with rain. And it's just gushing and pouring forth. Next, he he outruns Ahab. He's on foot. Ahab isn't to the entrance of Jezreel. I can't remember how far that is. It took a long run. I mean, Elijah's seen and done some amazing things. And here we pick up in chapter 19. You think this guy's just going to be keeping on, you know, kicking behind and taking names. Here in chapter 19, look what happens. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, the list I just gave you. He tells Jezebel, his wife, and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Hatred. Then he was afraid. Isn't that funny? Elijah, man, go back and read the list of stuff that you've already done and seen. Why are you afraid of Jezebel? It says he was afraid, and you're going to find out he thinks he's all alone. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He isolates himself, which is what we do when we're following the sin of Elijah. Nobody else in the whole world goes through what I am. You stay your servant. I'm going to go sit by myself. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. <laughs> and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, 
for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. He's tougher. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He's not just talking geographically. <coughs> what do you think? Why are you running from Jezebel? After all the stuff that you've seen and done, what's up? Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left. It's just me. And they seek my life. They, meaning just Jezebel. They is now like a million people or something. It's just Jezebel. Jezebel seeks my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great strong wind, tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And it's like he's rehearsed it because he says the same exact thing. Like he's prepared to say, Here's what I'm going to say to God. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I just can't help but imagine he said it in a whisper at this point. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they, Jezebel, uh, seeks my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat and Abimelech, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. Not seven, Elijah. 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Having seen all these things unfold, these amazing miracles, it reminds me of the amazing things that the disciples must have seen. Elijah runs like a chicken. Here, Jezebel. He isolates himself and he's moping under a broom tree thinking he's the only one doing God's work. The only faithful one out there. He's the only one hated by Jezebel and they have. And God told Elijah that he's got others in addition to him. In fact, 7,000. Not seven. Not just 70. Not 700, Elijah. Who think you're all alone, the only faithful man in all of Israel, 7,000 who are hated just like you, Joker. Son of Elijah was thinking he was the only one. He's got others in addition to him, and in fact, he's got others after him, Elijah, your predecessor, named Elisha. Predecessor, your successor, Elisha. Seems in John 15, 18, that Jesus knew what was in a man as he spoke with the disciples on the eve of his death, preparing them to be hated by their world. It seems he knew that they were the made of the same stuff that Elijah was made of, the same stuff that we're 
made of and that they, the 11, might actually think that they're going through something unique. They might actually think they're the only one in the whole world. They were all alone. Nobody else in the whole world is getting a plaque from their family like I am for being at Crosspoint Fellowship. Right? <laughs> Nobody else in the whole world is getting black like I am for following Jesus. No one else has ever been taken out of context like I have. No one else has ever been caricatured and made to look ridiculous like I have. Dear truths that I hold tight are treated like they are ridiculous and nobody else has ever been treated this way. Nobody else has ever been hated like I am. But the good words to these 11 on this night, the other 10, each of the ones that heard it, the other 10, they can know you'll be hated just like I will be. In Elijah's case, there were 7,000 that were hated and chased just like he was. Maybe not with a vengeance like he was, but hated nonetheless. And Elisha will be after him. And then there's this special one, all caps, one, who's hated before me. Every disciple would know that as he heard that from Christ. I'm hated in good company. But I'm not hated first. He's my pioneer. Consider this, followers of Christ. Consider this. How many thousands have been hated before you? How many thousands have been mocked? How many shunned? How many have been rejected by their families? How many have lost jobs? How many have been spurned by their friends? How many didn't get a call when their friends got together? Right? How many leave messages on other people's voicemail and they just won't call you back anymore? Because you're weird. Following Jesus so zealously. How many were avoided for you? It's got to be an encouragement to know that you're not hated alone. It's got to encourage you to know that you're in league with 7,000 who haven't been to me. That's the beauty of that plural know. Know that I was hated first. And there's a beauty in that indicative mood, the certainty that Christ was hated first. This is so helpful when you consider not just hatred struggles, but Marriage struggles, sin struggles, food struggles, <coughs> medication struggles, friend struggles, whatever issues you've got, insert those struggles in there. The sin of Elijah travels because the lie of Satan is that you're the only one going through that. Nobody's ever been married to the man I'm married to. He's a jerk. Nobody else has ever been married to a jerk like that man. Right, really? <coughs> I know of 7,000. That are in good company with you. Nobody else has ever struggled with what I struggle with. And it's helpful to know this about Christ that our high priest has experienced all these things. Our high priest experienced hatred first. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Don't <coughs> Look at two passages in Hebrews, and then we're going to bring this all together. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, being Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He wasn't kind of partially human. He wasn't sort of human. He was fully God, yet he was fully man. 
He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That struck me. Suffered when tempted. You ever been tempted to the point of suffering? Suffering when tempted. I thought about the temptations that he must have experienced when he's hated by the world that he made. When he's hated by the world, the Colossians tells us he's the one in whom all things are held together, and he's hated by that world. What temptations must have been there? Can you imagine the temptation to turn the clouds in the rain, lots of it. Can you imagine the temptation to look to the mountains and say, upend, upend on these people? It was just a word. Can you imagine the temptation to turn those stones to bread? What temptation it must have been not to destroy those who had shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and are now shouting, give us Barabbas. What temptation it must have been to take their breath. What temptation to take breath from those who mocked him, spit on him, beat him, and nailed him to a cross, but he didn't, and he's able to help those who are being tempted. (coughs) By somebody hating you, or insert the problem. He's able to identify with it. He's able to help. Look across the page of chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with how hard it is to deal with the reality that somebody hates you. Somebody that you used to be close to. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's mercy and grace to help when you're hated, not if you're hated. And there's good news in the words when he says, I was hated first. He's saying, I'm your pioneer, and I will help you, and I will, in fact, be your substitute. That's the good news of the gospel. Man, there's something to know in Christ endured and fulfilled what we haven't. There's got to be a strength that comes from that as well. Hebrews writer was in tune with this issue and the strength that comes from that. He said in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, seated at the right hand of the Father, who for the joy that was set before him instead endured the cross, endured hatred, endured people calling, Give us Barabbas, likely from mouths that he had fed loaves and fishes. Consider him who endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Know that I was hated first. Let me bring it all together, part one of this journey that we're on through this paragraph. There's much to explore. I'm going to bring this message together in these final thoughts. First of all, you will be hated by the world, your world. Not some sort of distant, dark enemy. Your world, right here, if you live and love like Christ, and if you live and love with Christ. But there's 7,000 we haven't been to meet. 
you're not alone. That's good news. Look around, you're not alone. And there's other people of God in this community that are enjoying him out loud. You're not alone. You'll be hated by the world, your world, if you live and love like Christ and if you live and love with Christ, but he was hated first. He's our pioneer. There's 7,000 that we're in league with, but there's one special one we can add, add to that. But let, let out the journey. He was hated first. If we understand the dynamics, we're better prepared to handle it when, not if, it happens. We are to know this and be certain of this. It's important. This knowledge is to be tempered by the knowledge that our God yet loved and loves us. So should we. We love them with the gospel as we've been loved. So next we're going to hold Not a lot to offer. We're going to hold forth a meal, a meal from God. It's not a buffet from the world. Contrast the Lord's Supper with the buffet of the world. And the passage in 1 John comes to mind, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, and the pride in possessions. Pretty unimpressive meal, isn't it? That's what God has given us. If we see it with eternal eyes, we see it with biblically informed eyes, we say, I'll take that and do it. I'm passing the smorgasbord of the world, even if that means I'm not going to be hated. I'll take this meal and be hated. Rather than the smorgasbord, the buffet, the knowledge. Like a simple meal that represents the simple gospel. We pray as we take the supper. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to what it means to enjoy you in a context where we will be hated if we enjoy you properly, if we enjoy you out loud, if we love others with the good news that has transformed us. Lord, I pray that that will free us from the prison of expectations that we have to be liked. Lord, I pray, too, that it will define how and why we are to be hated, not because we're jerks, but because we're loving others with the gospel. It's hard to hear. And a big chunk of the world is going to say that's the aroma of death. Lord, we want to be faithful for that portion of the world and the portion of our little context here that says that's the aroma of life. Lord, I pray that you'll find us faithful Pray that you'll find us available to engage and reason with anyone in Scripture. Lord, I pray for opportunities to engage those who may consider themselves keepers of the truth if they demonstrate hatred. Lord, I pray that we can engage those keepers of Scripture and the full counsel and that you'll be glorified and like-minded. I pray for those of us in this church that have family members and friends, neighbors that find out what we're about and who we're following and who we're walking with and they've got concerns and questions and alarms go off. Lord, I pray that this message be an encouragement. I pray that it will help us just exhale and know that our our role as servants doesn't mean that we're going to be better than our master. But if you were hated, then we'll be hated. Well, we're thankful for our pioneer and we're thankful for our substitute. We're thankful that he went on in front of us. We're thankful that he paved the way and that he actually did the cross to become our replacement. These next few minutes, as we enjoy this simple supper together, I want to pray that we enjoy our Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me ask this of you. If you're uh, 
If you're not believing in Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you're not casting yourself on Him, if your righteousness is only what you're clothed in, it's His, then don't take a supper. If it's just one among many things in your life, if it's just kind of another item in your agenda, in your day timer or your iPhone or whatever, that doesn't sound like worship. If you're identifying yourself as a consumer, then I would encourage right now in these next few minutes, as these elements are passed out, pray that you would change your heart and turn you and grow you into a worshiper. Whatever the cost. And then take that supper. I encourage you too, if you've recognized yourself in league with Elijah, and you've been thinking, I'm the only person in the world that's hated, or I'm the only person in the world that's going through problem blank. And confess that and ask him to encourage you as you see thousands of others who pressed on through your problem faithfully. And as you see that one other, that special one, all caps from now, we pioneered the way for you. Let's take a supper Let's take a drink. Luke 6.22 says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. That last qualifier is key. Because you can be hated, excluded, and reviled and spurned for a lot of reasons. You can be a total jerk at work, or, you know, micromanager all over people's business, or, you know, know, all kinds of things, reasons that you can be hated. That qualifier on account of something. What we're going to explore this next week is what that looks like. That's why we're on a journey of not getting wet in this issue of hatred. It's going to be probably a series of sermons to try and understand what does it mean. First, we need to know that Christ was hated first. And then we're in league with others. But next, we're going to look at case study, case studies, Abraham, Noah, and uh, apostles, many others that were hated. The blind man in John chapter 9 is a great example. If you want to study his family, kind of see what that looks like. And those are some things that you can study. David is another example. Daniel, uh, many examples of those throughout our Bible that have been hated for the, for the Lord's sake. So we're looking at that. And uh, next week, too, you know that we're going to be at Greenwood Christian School worshiping. We're not going to be here. If you come to this building, we'll be locked. And there won't be anybody here unless just some happen to somebody grab something and take over GCS. But GCS is right down the road, just around the bend, just beyond L3 on the left. And then we're meeting at uh, 10, 10 o'clock. And uh, there's no chalk here, right? I mean, it's everybody. So babies and everything. So we take that into account, too. You need to know that when we're in here, we don't have infants in here. Sermon may be a little bit longer. A little bit. Uh, we have infants. We try and take take that into account. You know, I know this is kind of a wrestling match. But... The Lord does pretty cool work to the little ones. And uh, you know, the reality is if you never bring little ones into an environment like this, they'll never be good at it. You just got to do it. And you got to be okay with maybe a few wrestling matches for a few weeks or months, maybe. And then it gets, just gets better. And then before long, you turn and they're paying attention. I think they're talking about it over lunch. say, how'd that happen? Because uh, they're sitting dying. So. Uh, we'll be at GCS next week, and uh, we'll send out an email, some information about plans, and we're also going to try and visit the neighborhoods around GCS this week and pass out some uh, flyers and let folks know where they're worshiping there. So, y'all stand on this mission. God, we thank you for the time that we've had together this morning, thank you for the time of the word we look forward to. If uh, you don't send Christ back first, uh, and if you will it, then we get together next week and we dine again and feast again on this passage of John 15 to understand what it means to, uh, to be in league with those who have been hated and uh, to understand how we should, why we should know it, how we should know it, the impact of knowing it. And, uh, so we're thankful again for our kind ear who paved the way. 
make the way possible for us to be able to fellowship with you. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. 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 Thank you.